This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. If we think about this process of othering, this tribalism that we're all so into now, like those are the bad people over there, right? We're so, it feels so satisfying to do that in the moment. And then we end up constructing a world where people are hating each other and suspicious of each other, right? So this quick fix of what feels better, I'm one of the good guys and you're the bad guys, the quick fix ends up being long-term a source of tremendous unhappiness. Partly what we do as parents is we worry about stupid stuff. We worry about the stuff that turns out not to be important, right? And so the worrying about whether our kids are learning kindness, whether they're learning the kind of emotional intelligence about how to work with a conflict with another kid, you know, how to manage difficulties in relationships. Those are really important. Whether they use the right fork for the salad, yeah, not so much. I mean, yes, some of those things can be helpful as you get through the world, but emotional intelligence, these relationship skills, we know from research are really important. Like there's been, there have been studies that suggest that success in the working world is predicted much less by your IQ, by your intelligence, than it is by your emotional intelligence, by your relationship skills. So what we can worry about as parents is, are my kids learning to get along with other people? Are they learning to be interested in other people, to be curious? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Robert Waldinger. Robert has a new book out that he's co-authored with Mark Schultz called The Good Life, Create a More Meaningful and Satisfying Life. Bob is also the fourth director of the 84-year Harvard study, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It has 724 men, or it started with 724 men. 84 years ago, 268 men were sophomores at Harvard. 456 were teenagers from the inner city of Boston. And there's about 40 people left on the study. 
and they do extensive, you know, brain scans and blood draws and they talk to their wives and their children. And it's all about sort of, you know, the sense of satisfaction in life. I mean, happy is, happy is a moving target. Nobody feels happy all the time. But the idea of meaning and satisfaction, that has this everlasting impact on us. And of course, it's about relationships. It's about feeling genuinely connected with somebody. This person has my back. It doesn't mean you have boatloads of people and it doesn't mean that you and your spouse never bicker. It just means that you feel that you have invested in the relationships. And the other part of this is that I love is it's never too late. So he has beautiful stories in there of 70 year olds that are pretty isolated and they join a gym and before you know it, they have this new community. So I'm always interested in, in trying to pay attention to and focus on that long game or that those real things that truly matter. Cause we all get caught up. You know, our mind is looking for a quick fix. We're looking to make more money. You know, he talks about 80% of millennials want to be rich and 50% of those 80% want to be famous. And for some reason, these old stories, we still have to learn for ourselves. And you'll see Bob is really lovely. And also, let me remind you that good relationships are good for you. The science on keeping diabetes at bay, dementia and Alzheimer's, and just being able to go through the you know hard knocks of life is easier when we have good relationships. So I hope you enjoy. Robert Waldinger, welcome to the podcast. I have to say, when I when I knew I was going to be talking to you about what we're going to be talking about, you know, who doesn't want to talk about, you know, the exploration of a satisfied life or I don't like to use the word happiness and we'll we'll get into that. You know, you you have a new book that's coming out. First of all, maybe you could just break down for me. You are the director of the longest study. It's what is it, 84 years? Where where's the Harvard study at right now? 84 years. It started in 1938. Now, to me, the fact that there's a study that exists and it's only been four directors in itself is pretty amazing. First of all, maybe you could just share briefly. I, I think most people are very familiar with the Harvard study because of its length, but just, you know, how many men and there were sort of two groups and what it entails and um, how you ended up being the latest director. Sure. So the study started as two studies and they didn't even know about each other. One was started at Harvard University Health Services. We started with a group of Harvard College undergraduates, 268 of them who were thought to be fine, upstanding young men. And the study was a study of normal development, moving from adolescence into young adulthood. So, of course, if you want to study normal adult development, you study all white guys from Harvard, right? It's the most politically incorrect study sample you could have now. But in 1938, that was what we got. The other study started at Harvard Law School, and it was started by Sheldon Gluck, a law professor, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, a social worker. They were interested in why some children from really difficult backgrounds managed to avoid getting into trouble, 
managed to avoid juvenile delinquency. So what was that special sauce in those troubled families that allowed those kids to stay on good paths? And then eventually those studies got combined. So now we have both of them and 724 men and then their wives and now all their children, more than half of whom are women. And that's what we got. And you talk about, I don't know, is it like every two years you, you're doing questionnaires and you've done brain scans and blood draws and, you know, for people to really get their head around it, you you guys do a really extensive deep dive, like you said, finally with their partners. I I, re- I was laughing in the book where the wives were like, yeah, finally, you want to talk to us. And then the kids. Really? How, how many of these participants are actually s- still alive? So the original participants, probably less than 40 of the 724. And they're all in their late 90s, a few over 100. The second generation, the children, are mostly baby boomers, average age 60, 65. You say in this study that, and I was just wondering if this was the intention of it, is basically, I'm going to oversimplify what the research shows, but that good relationships are good for you. And maybe we could just talk about that a little because I do want to get into the science, but also I'd like to get into, you know, in the conversations that you have in your new book about, because someone could listen to this and go, well, I didn't do that. And we all know even striving for success can make, you know, the collateral damage in your personal relationships with relationships with your children so then you are, yeah. you know, 50s and 60s and you go, oh, I've blown it. And you're saying that's not necessarily the case. But maybe we could just talk quickly about, you know, happy aging and and sort of this idea of why relationships are not only good for you, your sense of satisfaction, but also cognitive function and other areas of health. Yes. So first, I just want to underline what you pointed out, which is that many people think they've done the wrong things, and so it's too late. What we find is it's never, ever too late. That there were people in our study who, in their 70s and 80s, turned their lives around, turned their relationships around. So never too late. And then you're asking this great question, How do relationships keep us healthier? I mean, we can get how they might keep us happier, right? If our relationships are good. But how could they get into our bodies and like prevent us from getting type 2 diabetes or arthritis or heart disease? How could that possibly be? So we've been studying that. It seems to have a lot to do with stress that when you're either isolated or you're in really toxic relationships, your stress levels are high. And, you know, the body is meant to react to stress quickly, like if, you know, if something scares you, but it's meant to come back to baseline. What if you are chronically stressed by being lonely, by being in a terrible set of relationships, then your body never comes back to baseline, but those stress hormones keep taking a toll on different body systems. And that's what we think is the primary mechanism by which this happens. I'm curious, is it almost worse to be in a bad dynamic than to be alone? Great question. 
We don't know, but there are a couple of studies that suggest that divorce is preferable to being in a really high conflict relationship that goes on for a long time. But again, it's really hard to compare being alone and being in a in a toxic relationship. It's just really hard. Yeah, I think there's probably people shaking their head. What's that bad joke about divorce? Is it expensive because it's worth it? I think it's because let's face it, sometimes we do the right thing when we're young or we do what we're supposed to. We follow the rules and then, OK, we, we get married and maybe especially this kind of generation where they really that's what you do you know, you you followed a certain system and a plan. Absolutely. And I always think there are sometimes situations where maybe people, it isn't, I know you've been in a very long marriage. I've actually been in a pretty, almost 25 year marriage, but that there are situations where it's like, hey, maybe it would be better not to. And I always find that when people can be courageous, you know, instead of it looking at it as a fail to remind people that also sometimes it's courageous to go, hey, maybe this isn't working. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and many couples do when, when they separate, each partner is happier and fun. Often they will go on and find relationships that are more fulfilling. I think, you know, one of the things, if there's a lot invested, like if you have kids or if you've built your lives together, then it's probably worth like trying some couple therapy or, you know, to see, and it doesn't mean that you go to, to couples therapy to try to stay together, you go to couples therapy to try to figure out what the best path is forward. And that might include splitting up. That's a really important point. I, I'm curious, you have, you have two sons, right? Yeah. You know, for you, cause someone, even just to see you in your, all your presentations and all your talks, you have, um, what someone would say from the outside, a natural, someone go, well, he seems naturally sort of more happy than other people. Like you have a, you know, a fluidity. I know you practice meditation and you have things in place to support that kind of homeostasis or well-being. Yeah. But I, I would love to know, you know, the areas that you personally sort of work on and also if anything through this process uh, that you thought, oh, I'm going to incorporate that in, in my practice to help me. Yes. Really important. I mean, it can look, you know, from the outside, like somebody else has it all figured out. Trust me, I do not have it all figured out. And trust me, I have really bad days. And so I, I really appreciate your question because I think it's easy for us to imagine that other people are getting it right and we're not doing it right. But I'll tell you some of what I what I struggle with and what I'm learning from my own research. Uh, so I struggle with working too much. You know, I was raised as a kid who got good grades and, you know, achievement has been kind of a thing for me. And then you realize, well, you could just achieve, you know, your whole life away. And so one of the things this work has helped me see is that I can make choices day to day to temper my work life with relationships. So for example, I think about, have I seen this friend in a while? And I can make a choice to reach out and say, can we go for a walk this weekend? Doing a lot of walks during COVID now instead of other things. But, but you know, to try to, to literally shape my life because I could, I could spend all Saturday afternoon working or I could spend Saturday afternoon 
touching bases with somebody who I haven't seen in too long. And what I'm learning to do is make myself do the connecting. When the path of least resistance is to sit here and do more email, right? Right. To get everything always complete, closing loops and checking off yeah. boxes. You have actually a quote in your book to your point, which is, I think it goes something like, um, you know, the problem is, is we compare our inside selves with everyone's outside selves. And so I think it's just an important thing to highlight because my hope with these types of conversations is, is not a, only for people to get tools and kind of friendly whispers and reminders like, hey, having more zeros isn't going to actually make you feel more satisfied, but to right. remind them that, and you say this a lot in your book about that this is all very messy. Relationships are messy. Getting older is messy. Life is messy. And I don't think that's different for anyone, regardless of what it looks like. You are so right. And the one of the, the hard parts is that we end up giving each other the impression that we're fine. We've got it figured out. Like, think about what we post on social media for each other. You know, the beautiful meals we're eating or the great beaches we're at, right? Or whatever. And, and we, okay, we know intellectually that, you know, we're, we're all doing that. But, but you can get this gut feeling of, I'm missing out. Yeah. Everybody else is having a great life all the time and I'm not. And I am here to tell you, having studied thousands of lives, including my own, <laughs> that nobody has an easy life all the time and everybody struggles with things. And that it's so helpful, I think, to just name that. I think so. And I think it's not, um, it, you never hit a bullseye. I think it's something that you revisit, you, you know, and sort of check in with yourself and, and bring it up. So, in the study, you have, you know, I did laugh at that the Harvard men were never surprised why you kept checking in with them. But then, the you know, ones from the city of Boston were like, why are you still asking me, you know, questions? You know, I thought that was very, very funny. But, you know, maybe we can just sort of visit that this scope of people were people who had nothing and accomplished everything, people who had everything and lost everything, people who became alcoholics. You said there was a president is... In summary, in these questionnaires about satisfaction or how would you rate it, you know, what were the pillars that kept showing up that people had this sense of a well-lived life or, satis you know, a satisfied life? So a couple things. When, when people were in their 80s, we asked them to look back on their lives and we asked them, what are the things you're proudest of and what are the things you regret the most? And the regrets were, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work. I wish I had spent more time with family and friends, with the people who are important to me, right? And another regret, actually women said this often, I wish I hadn't worried so much about what other people thought. And so those are, those are kind of helpful pointers to when you look back on your life, what would you like to avoid, you know, regretting? Then the things that people were proudest of, nobody mentioned, I made a lot of money or I won this award, you know, or I became famous. And some of our people were famous, but nobody mentioned that. They all mentioned things that were about the people in their lives and the causes that they cared about. So it was, 
I raised good kids. Um, I was a good friend. I mentored people. I did a lot of good work for this cause that I care so much about. And so those were the those were the things people look back on with satisfaction. Bob, do you think that this is just an eternal human lesson that we we can know this and people older than us can tell us this and we just have to go through this ourselves and realize and worry and work too much. I, I'm always interested at things when I watch human behavior and and I say this when I say like looking in the mirror what I'm I how what I'm doing that there's these things that we know to be true, but yet it's almost like we all get the hook in our mouth and we we have to learn it by touching the fire. I, I mean, what is that? I think we do. And I think partly it's the the way we acquire wisdom as we get older. I mean, younger people particularly want to be famous and they want to be rich. You know, they imagine that they're going to want that and that it's going to do it for them. You know, if they get those things. And then I think as we get older, we look around us more and we see like who's happy and who's not. And we think about our own experiences. What has made me happy and what doesn't really do much for me? And it's that it takes time to acquire that kind of perspective on life. And so we try to give like, I want to get this message out, you know, and thank you for helping me do it. But some of it we have to learn ourselves, right? And I think, you know, parenting is a great example of that where you just are like, oh, okay, you're, you know, you're learning that right now and really giving space to that. If you had a younger person in their 20s, you know, I would love to just kind of maybe go through 20s and 30s a little bit about like, well, what would be some good questions for those individuals to ask themselves, you know, kind of as they're trying to organize and develop their lives? Sure. I mean, one of the things I find helpful at any age, but especially maybe, you know, uh, for young adults, is to tune into yourself, kind of what lights me up, what raises my energy, and what's really an energy sink, and to pay attention to that. Because a lot of times, the things that we love aren't necessarily the thing that the world values right now. But that changes all the time. And the things that we love are really important. They give us more energy. We're usually better at the things that we love. And the other thing is what saps my energy? What brings me down? Even if the world says, this is great, you should want to do this job, or you should be with this partner, really tune in because you're your own gut sense of what you care about, what draws you toward it or what saps your energy is really useful to keep paying attention to. When you say that, it reminds me of when I was you know, younger and I would maybe date certain people. And it was interesting. Sometimes you'd have the out, your outside crew being like, he's amazing and all this. And you'd be like, oh, I'm getting you know com- affirmation from them about how amazing he is, but I'm actually, I'm not really feeling it. And then here's this person over here that nobody's getting why I'm just, sort of drawn towards them and I I see things. And so it's so true that, and I say this again about having kids and I try to remind myself, it's like people know things about themselves and their lives that we can't possibly see or know. Yes, yes. And it's that's a perfect example. 
where everybody else is saying, this is awesome, go for this. And you're saying, I'm just not feeling it. Yeah. I just want to share this great quote, which I love. Remember Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth? And he he had a quote that I just love. He said, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. And it, again, it's that learning and that we have to go through it. But sometimes if there's outside people going, hey, you can do it in your own way. And and sometimes, by the way, your own way is harder because it maybe is a new path, like this quote you're talking about, but that it's really then only your path. You talk a little bit about how, and we just sort of alluded to it about, we are always, you know, our biology rests upon our ability to be cooperative in the book, Natural Born Heroes, they talk really about how competition is sort of this made up thing in certain ways. Obviously, people are going to compete for mates if we're going way back, but in this day and age, but that really cooperation, that that's connected to our evolution, but our society doesn't ultimately really support that. Right. And then right. it is it is sort of this competitive nature, but when we can unplug from that, maybe the comparisons and all of that, that's where we get that that chance to find our our thing. Yeah. And that other people can help us find our thing. You know, if we connect with people who who actually are curious about us, and if we can be curious about them, they can help us by noticing, oh, you get really excited when you talk about this, or you're really good at this, right? Maybe you could also just sort of share about that our brain is really hard, hardwired for this quote quick fix and that doesn't always work in our favor right right well because we're often bad at knowing what will make us feel good in the long term i mean you know think about alcohol and drugs i mean they're a quick fix we take them cuz they make us feel better in the short run and you know i'm I'm happy to have a drink at times. It's not that. I'm not, you know, I'm not a teetotaler. But what we find is that long-term, these quick fixes, and and alcohol and drugs are just the best examples because they're so clear. These quick fixes over time drag us down and actually destroy us. Or the the quick fix of blowing off steam and spewing your anger feels good in the moment. Yeah. But actually, most of the time. That doesn't work very well. Uh, whereas learning to use our anger as a signal and learning to use it more constructively, that ends up being better. Another thing, you know, if we think about this process of othering, this tribalism that we're all so into now, like those are the bad people over there, right? We're so It feels so satisfying to do that in the moment. And then we end up constructing a world where... People are hating each other and suspicious of each other, right? So this quick fix of what feels better, I'm one of the good guys and you're the bad guys, the quick fix ends up being long-term a source of tremendous unhappiness. And I I really appreciate it because we we don't, you know, nuance or nuance disagreement or debate, you know, it's almost becoming a time where it's like, we used to celebrate healthy debate and, and things like that. And now it's like, no, either we all agree on every single thing or now you're my opponent. And, um, but I don't know. I, I still feel that that's connected to fear. And you talk a lot in the book about 
sort of certain patterns that we get when we're young. So let's say someone's had a trauma or no dad or just something that's occurred. What are ways that people, and you you do an analogy with, uh, with uh, kind of keepsakes that they keep from their childhood, but you go, yes, but we also have them within our, our, our being, the way that we react and respond. What did you see in the study of people who could sort of leave that behind or were able to respond differently than maybe some of the, the troubles that they really had when they were younger? I think we saw that some people could really be open to new experiences, to um, to a next relationship not being like the last one. To even if you felt betrayed by a parent uh, when you were young, not necessarily letting that be your expectation of the next relationship. It's hard to do. It's hard to really be curious about, well, who is this person in front of me? When I've got so much expectation coming from, you know, having been traumatized in the past. And so some people are able to do that. One of the ways that people overcome some of these past traumas is through good relationships in the present. So being with somebody who helps you see, oh, actually, it can be different. Someone can be trustworthy even though you had a hard time in the past, that those kind of new experiences with new relationships can really turn people's expectations around. Because that group wasn't necessarily really uh, encouraged to like go to therapy. It's not like they, that group had to muscle it, you know, and, and even in certain ways, you and I are kind of the tail end of suck it up, you know, I mean, and they were really sucking yeah. up. You're talking about depression, living through de- the Great Depression, where we're, you know, two. And so there wasn't a lot of room for everybody's feelings. So do you think that they were, I guess that's the million dollar question, right? In, in talking about the woman who helped start this, it's like, is it the person who's born a certain way? Was their mother, you know, extra supportive and loving, even though things were very difficult? Like, were there any common threads of things that helped somebody be able to move, move beyond? Well, love, yes. I mean, warm relationships when you're young really do set the stage for good relationships when you're older. I mean, and that's a stroke of luck. We don't choose the family we're born into, right? But we know that it makes an enormous difference. And so, and, and the reason why that's important is we can't go back and redo our childhoods we can do it better for our own kids and for the next generations, that it really matters that kids are raised in a, in a setting of love and safety. Matters hugely. But, but there are ways, as I said, to overcome some of these earlier difficult experiences, and some of our people really did overcome it. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got I did some research and what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law and Ritual really knows 
how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They, they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Rituals multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finish touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I uh, I think there was, I, I did write this down and I'm going to read it because you said about the love. Um, and I, I still have two teenagers at home. You, you say in your book that, you know, hold, but don't baby, admire, but don't embarrass, guide, but don't control and release, but don't abandon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's hard to do when you have teenagers, right? Because your kids are saying, leave me alone, mom, right? And and so, but they don't really want you to leave them completely alone. No. And I actually find that teenagers weirdly are like, get away from me. But they, they when they turn around, they need you to be standing behind them more than ever. Absolutely. It's that transition, right? Like I'm breaking away from you. I'm trying to navigate my own life. I better think I know something. Um, otherwise, why would I take this on? That's why we have know-it-all kids. I mean, come on, who would have the balls to take on the life if you didn't think, hey, I, I got this. But um, right, right. I feel like, you know, you said about the women not worrying about so much what other people felt. I would be curious if also in addition to that, it was also not to worry so much and fret about our children because we do spend so much time fretting 
um, because it is. We're not objective. It's the most important job we do. I wish that we, you know, so and you know, you see the you see the eighty year old that's like, oh, it's a phase. It'll be okay, you know. And you're sitting here biting your nails, going, oh, you know. But but I I feel yeah. like it's again over and over and over. We just all is that what the job takes though? Maybe in that moment. Well, partly what we do as parents is we worry about stupid stuff. We worry about the stuff that turns out not to be important, right? And so the worrying about whether our kids are learning kindness, whether they're learning the kind of emotional intelligence about how to work with a conflict with another kid, you know, how to manage difficulties in relationships, those are really important. Whether they use the right fork for the salad, yeah, not so much. I mean, yes, some of those things can be helpful as you get through the world, but emotional intelligence, these relationship skills, we know from research are really important. Like there's been there have been studies that suggest that success in the working world is predicted much less by your IQ, by your intelligence, than it is by your emotional intelligence, by your relationship skills. So what we can worry about as parents is are my kids learning to get along with other people? Are they learning to be interested in other people, uh, to be curious, not to be jerks with other people? Right. Okay. Let's talk about that though. Like with, in this day and age, and, and I, I know, you know, you've maybe seen more of the transition than other directors of the study before you with technology and devices and such, it's like, are there new concerns for young people that are starting to show up maybe and even in the questionnaires or, 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 you know, things that they're talking about in your studies, because, you know, learning to be interested in other people when everyone is becoming more and more increasingly disconnected and uncomfortable having eye contact and talking and all these things. I'm just wondering if that's starting to show up and if you have any concerns about that. Well, disconnection is a problem, and some of it is based on how people use social media. You know, many kids spend much of their lives online. And, and one of the things we know is that how people use social media makes a big difference in how they develop and how happy they are. So, and particularly for teenagers. Kids who are passive consumers of social media, like scrolling Instagram feeds, that leads people to be more depressed and more anxious, more insecure, right? But using social media to actively connect with others and then maybe be able to even meet them offline in the real world, those can provide really good connections and can help people develop relationship skills, uh, which they need to develop. So I think the biggest challenge that you and I didn't face, but that our kids are facing now is how do we relate in a world that so much goes on online and learning to use social media instead of being swept along by it is a really important thing that we can help our kids figure out. I got to tell you, I think it's like the billion dollar situation. I mean, I joke because I'm freaked out that my 
youngest daughter is the experiment. You know, it's like somehow my older two eked out, but I'm watching and I'm like, oh, this is the experiment. And and quite frankly, we all have the data. We all know the tricks. We all know the slot machine. We know the dopamine hits. We know all of it. But yet none of us are really doing it well. And so no. I'm, I'm, I'm also secretly being maybe naively faithful that like somehow if I'm a good example and we keep having conversations and she sees her dad and I and her sister's relating and she has friendships that like maybe as the brain develops, somehow they'll work it out. I don't know. Well, that is important. As far as we can tell, what all the things you just named really are important. Another thing you could do with with your child is move. Yes, <laughs> where there's no inner. Well, no, it's an experiment. But do the ask ask. I don't know if it's him or her. All um, girls, all girls, <laughs> all girls. So ask her to do an experiment to notice. Different times she's doing different things online and notice how she feels after 20 minutes or half an hour doing one thing and then how she feels doing a different thing and notice what her energy is like and what her mood is like. And she may begin to notice, oh, when I'm on TikTok, actually, I don't feel so good. I start to feel down. I start to feel FOMO, right? But when I'm doing this thing, when I'm in this chat room talking about this, I actually enjoy it and I and I get excited, right? She can take the temperature, her own temperature, as she uses social media in different ways to see. And then she can learn what to stay away from and what to go toward. I, I like the way it sounds. I don't, you, you, you know, teenage girls <laughs> are very, in, they're a really interesting dynamic. And by the way, I'm glad, but I don't have compliant children. So, you know, the idea would ha- maybe have to come from somewhere else. Well, it, yeah. Do you know might. what I mean? I mean, quite frankly, we, we have a, a constant saying in our house, an expert is uh, somebody who lives a mile away. It dawns on me, does this concern you? Like the study, is it changing? And, and do you see sort of because of the speed of our world and the, the technology, have there been some really obvious things that are showing up in our kind of culture and civilization, just on the amounts that people are being hit with all the time? Well, we're just finding out a little bit about that. We're just surveying our second generation about that, about their uh, online behaviors. However, they're in their 60s and 70s, right? So we're not, at this point, we're not studying the third and fourth generations. And those are the folks that you and I are talking about. So we don't know yet, but there are a lot of other good studies of younger people and how they're using the internet. We talk a lot about happiness and I'm just curious for you personally, like how do you define it? And, and you know, like what does it mean to you? And, and a lot of times in the questionnaires, it's a scale of numbers, like one to 10 or, you know, such. It, do you think it is that? Well, no. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, you know, like sometimes people, you know, it's like on a day to day or they. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because what I appreciate about this study is you say, hey, listen, it'd be impossible to go back and ask someone to remember, you know, the last 80 years. So we we try to keep up with them and get their temperature every couple of years. So maybe 
just from your point of view as somebody who's running this study, you know, what is what does it mean to you? What does happiness mean to you and 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 how do you define it? I think the way I define it and the way I've seen these lives play out is that the people who are the happiest, including me, are when we feel engaged in the world, uh, when we feel like we're in it. It doesn't matter how, right? It could be could be doing anything. It could be nuclear physics. It could be bungee jumping. It could be gardening. It could it could be it could be anything, but if we're engaged, and I think that that's also what the brain science tells us that you stay sharper when you stay engaged with the world. So th- what we worry about are the people who withdraw from the world, not people who are shy, because shy people can be very engaged, but it's the people who just disengage, who stop caring, who stop being out there in the world doing things that are meaningful to them. I think you say something that's really important too. Like there are people who are more naturally introverted. And so you're not saying, hey, it's not about not being introverted, but it's about being engaged. And then I'm also curious if you know how uh, loneliness, people who are more alone than they want to be versus somebody who's choosing, they sort of like the simplicity of more quiet. Is there a difference in their, the way that their sense of, kind of satisfaction uh, also gets is met is showing up being measured totally totally so loneliness is that subjective feeling of i want more connection i'm not as connected as i want to be isolation relative isolation where you you're a hermit right you might love it and i bet some days you imagine especially if you have three daughters I bet you I bet you imagine some days you'd really like being a hermit somewhere. Uh, but some people love that. And so, you know, again, some people love quiet and simplicity in their lives. There is nothing wrong with that. There's a lot right with that. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to make that differentiation. And it's funny, when you say gardening, I thought if as long as they maybe have that those couple very meaningful connections. And and I, I wanna say too that I want to remind people you you say very clearly listen there might be couples who they bicker everybody has different styles but that it's like hey this person genuinely has my back is is kind of the the important part you know like in my house I joke my husband and I are actually both probably too mean to fight so we don't we don't bicker because it wouldn't it just doesn't work we don't have that kind of personality we weren't raised that way um, but that, so it's not about like, oh, we're happy and it's all good. It's, it's, hey, this person loves me and, um, and really has my back. And, and, but it doesn't mean also lots of connections. It could be somebody who's like, hey, I go out and hike in the mountains and I commune with nature. And that brings me this in- incredible feeling. And I have two really badass friends I can call and, and connect with. Exactly. Exactly. That we need to feel like there's somebody there. We we asked our people at one point, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And some people could list quite a few. Some people couldn't list anyone. And I think what we see is that what people really want is just what you're saying. They want to feel that there's somebody in the world who has their back. And as long as you've got even one person, 
Many people are just fine with that. That's enough. What do you think as the collective that's like maybe some of the obstacles that's keeping us from this? And again, I use the word happiness just as sort of a target area, not, you know, we get there and we live there, but just this feeling of the good life. What do you see as as some of the greatest kind of obstacles for the collective, for for sort of our, I don't want to use the word civilization, but our culture? And, and, you know, we could get into, hey, people used to live multi-generational in in homes and things like that. But right now, what are you, what are you sort of, what shows up for you as kind of some of the barriers to that? Well, I think some of the barriers are that we have so many influences pulling us away from community, right? It doesn't mean that we have to live in multi-generational homes, but it means that so much of our world is constructed, especially in the United States, around isolation, around nuclear, tiny nuclear families, around um, not enough time to spend cultivating relationships not enough motivation to go out and volunteer in the community or be part of community groups. And so there are other cultures where the community really is still absolutely central. And so I think that that may be one of the biggest obstacles to having lives that, that we feel are, are good, are meaningful, uh, where we're not happy all the time, but we say, this is good enough. Maybe share about the importance of being the person who would go first. Who would go first uh, to reach out? Yes, because I. this is something I I was asked the question a long time ago by Tim Ferriss. He asked me, he goes, what advice would you say? And I say to go first, say good morning first, say hello first. You know, I, I always joke that I, um, because I'm 6'3", I bully people into engaging with me all the time. Like, even when they don't want to, I'm just wow. like, hey, how are you? And they're just yeah. like, uh, you know? Yeah. And it, and I, and they listen, it's scary, but you realize everybody wants to. Yes. Ooh, can I tell you about an experiment? Yes. It's a little geeky, but it, it's, it, it points to just what you're saying. Okay. Some researchers did an experiment where they had a bunch of people who were about to take a subway ride and they were randomly assigned to either do what they normally did, which was look at their phones, read, listen to music, keep to themselves, or strike up a conversation with a stranger. Is this in New York? And I they, need to know. Was it in New York? Oh. Yeah. I think it was. I have to go back and look. I think it was in New York. And so, and they, what they did was they, they asked people before they did it, they said, rate how much you think you're going to like this task that you've been assigned. And so as you can imagine, the people who were going to do their usual thing thought they would be really happy. And the people who were going to have to strike up a conversation with a stranger thought they weren't going to like it. And then after they completed their assignment, they gave them the questionnaire again. And the people who struck up conversations with strangers were way happier than the people who did what they always did on the subway. And so it speaks to your point of going first. Even if it feels like, oh, this is awkward. I don't know if I'm going to like it. Just try. Just yeah. strike. Even if you're not 6'3", strike up the conversation, you know? Yeah, I'm working with what I have, uh, Bob. You know, I'm, I, I got to, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And I think you're doing pretty well. <laughs> I, I also want to say, too, um, there's something to be said. I think also if we, we start to divide into troops like, oh, I'm a female, you're a male. Um, this person's that age. This person's this. And really what you start to learn is when you do go first and you say hello to people, whether they're 85 or they're 15, in that moment, you know, you look in someone's eyes, it's just that, you know, it's just like, oh, you're a human, I'm a human. And it's very interesting, like, you exactly. know, a 15-year-old boy does not want to say hello to a middle-aged woman. But if I'm like, hey, what's up? They're just like, oh, hey, you know. Conversely, some 85-year-old lady might yeah. be in her bubble. But if I'm like, oh, how are you today? Um, they're ready. They're, re they're, they're ready. Yeah. So I, I want to always encourage people and it is scary and, and weird. And now I get the pleasure out of the discomfort of somebody. You know, like if you ask somebody, hey, how's your day? I can tell you 50% of the time they say what? Because nobody asks them that. Right. How's your right. day? And especially nobody really wants to know. Sometimes they'll ask it in a formulaic <laughs> way, but you really want yeah, to know. Why not? So in writing this book, I loved, I just... I don't know. I, I'm curious what you, the, you know, kind of the overall takeaway. If you said, hey, if people could just take these two things away or, you know, three things, kind of the the pillars of what what you wanted it to represent. What is that? Okay. The, the biggest takeaway is that relationships really matter and that investing time in keeping them strong and building strong ones really matters. It's a it's one of the best investments you can make in your life. So that's the first thing. And that, probably the second thing is that it's never too late. That even if you're convinced that you're terrible at this, you can get better and things can really get better in your relationships. You have a story. I believe the gentleman's name was Andrew Deering. I think he was maybe in his 70s. Am I getting this right? Do you recall? Yeah. yeah. And he yeah, kind yeah. of maybe was, it felt like he had a curmudgeon type of deal and his satisfaction was pretty low. And um, he went and made some changes. And, and he just, he, he joined a gym and he got a bunch of friends. And, and so this guy who'd had not very many relationships and had kept to himself suddenly found this community that he really enjoyed. I mean, some people find that when they move to retirement communities. Some people find it for the first time in a nursing home, yeah. believe it or not. So it is never too late for this to happen. You know what's interesting, and I, I know we've all experienced this, is sometimes like we blow it, sometimes in our familial way. Like we were young, we were stressed out, we didn't know better. And then I actually think people do evolve and sort of they get they get it, but it's almost like everyone else in their life won't let them be the new them. So, it, so yeah. it, it's reminding people like you have your chosen family, your given family. It's like it's it's not about the way it's supposed to be. It could just also be like you said, hey, I move into a retirement home. People see me for who I am today, and that could be pretty great. I just have one last thing that was really intriguing to me, where people talked about sort of befriending or the trickiness of being kind of friendly with coworkers. You, you discuss this in the book. I thought this was interesting because it's like, here you want to 
care about how everyone feels, but maybe if you're, let's say, in the in the manager position or the boss position, there's something really hard or uncomfortable about that. Um, maybe we could just sort of talk about that a little bit because I think that's the thing, right? You're you're trying to connect with people and are interested, but you also have to say to them, "Hey, we have to do better in our job," or it can be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah. and I think the important thing is to try to be upfront about it with each other to say, look, you know, I'm your boss. And so there are going to be times when it may get awkward and we need to talk about it. Right. Cause I want you as my friend and at times I'm going to have to put my boss hat on. Right. Or, you know, as the, as the subordinate, you know, you're going to have to feel like you can say, hey, I'm not happy with what's going on here in our friendship, right? It's tricky. It is tricky, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It's it obviously is easier if you make friends with people who are, where there's no power differential, but that's hard to do, right? And it's not always possible. And so I think that the next best thing is to be able to talk about it when there's a power imbalance and just you know, and just keep that as one of the things that the friendship gets to discuss. Do you ever lose your temper? You don't seem like a person who would lose their temper. I do sometimes, not very <laughs> often. It, I have a long fuse, but then when I do, it's it's not good. <laughs> what, what gets you? For me, I it's my my family can get me because I care so much and I'm passionate. Yeah. The other stuff I have, I'm better at being objective. Yes. I'm curious what gets you. I think it's feeling not heard and not appreciated. I think sometimes when I I, I, I can reach a boiling point when I feel like I'm trying really hard and somebody is just not either not paying attention or not listening and and that um, that I just don't matter because I think that the you know the one of the things we all need to feel like is that we matter and. I think the thing that makes me feel the worst and gets me the angriest is when I feel like somebody's treating me like I don't matter. Yeah. I think it's, that's all of us, right? What is, it's, it's, especially when you're trying to be like kinder, like you're trying to be, you know, kinder. So you're like, hey, let's not misconstrue this for somebody who isn't, you know, serious about something. Well, so I, I want to say that this book for me, obviously there was a lot of things that I I knew, but there were so many important reminders and all these different dynamics between like husbands and wives. Like I loved um, Henry and and, uh, Rosa just. Oh, yeah. And there was something in there um, that I I also want to bring up before we finish, which is, you know, what is it? I forget exactly. It was sort of like, what is it that I'm missing or what is it that I'm not seeing? you know, within the relationship. Yes. Right. What's here that I haven't noticed before? Yeah. That that's a question I learned in meditation, but it works really well in relationships. Yeah. So I, I, I just wanted to bring that up because again, the book has so, so much information, but just also so many beautiful, so many beautiful stories and inspiring stories because they're real, real people. And, and to remind people, I think that you know, more money, what is it after like 75 grand, is it really going to make a difference? And um, yeah. the stat that I thought was interesting though was 
if 80% of millennials think they want to be rich and 50% of those think they want to be famous, then we all need to get out there and and connect with each other and make sure we're building bridges for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because wealth and fame aren't going to do it. Not by themselves. (laughs) No, they're not. Um, Bob, do you want to... Did I miss anything that feels really important to you? No, you you've you're you're really good at this. I mean, <laughs> I guess you know that, but you're really good at this. You're a really good interviewer. I really appreciate. I mean, you knew you know a lot about what we're trying to say and you really, you know, I really appreciate it. You did a lot of preparation for this and I just want to name it. Oh, well, I uh first of all, I respect people's time very much and um I have been interviewed many, many times. And when someone comes ill-prepared, I'm less generous. And um, and also, yeah. I think this is a very important message. It's subtle. Like everything that's really important, it's usually not so sizzly and sexy, but it's it's so rich and deep. Yeah. So I appreciate your time. And doing a book is not, it takes a lot of work. So it, it warrants being read and and honored. So I, I just want to say thank you. And and I'm, I want to end this with your Mark Twain quote. There isn't time so brief as life for bickering apologies, heartburnings, calling them to account. There's only time for loving and but an instant, so to speak, for that. So thank you, Bob Waldinger. I will put all of the information of when the book's out and where people can find it. And I appreciate your time and aloha. Gabby, this was such a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Bye. Okay. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at gabbyreese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.